Most Americans, when they think of Navy SEALs doing a raid, they kind of think it's cool. When they think of a drone killing somebody from afar, right, they tend to think it's a little creepy. But from the perspective of the system, the targeting system, those are just the flathead and the Phillips head screwdriver at the end of that system. That was Phil Cly reading a passage from his new novel, Missionaries. He stopped by to talk to Tony Domestico, our literary critic, not only about the book, but about writing about war and violence and other issues. That's coming right up on the Commonwealth Podcast. Hi, Tony. It's good to have you here. Hi, Dominic. It's good to be here. I've been looking forward to this episode for some time. Definitely. Missionaries is a book that's been on my list, and I I take it that was probably something you were looking forward to as well. Yeah. You know, the fall is always a really big season in the publishing world, and it's even bigger this year because so many titles were pushed back from the spring to the fall. And this is certainly going to be one of the biggest books of the season. Phil Cly, as you know, won the National Book Award for his first collection, Redeployment, and everyone was eager to see what he'd do with a first novel, and, and I think the, the wait has been worth it. And you guys uh, talk about a couple of things. We sort of tipped it off a little bit in the intro about his writing about war and violence, but Phil also writes from a Catholic perspective as well. Yeah, so he talks about his own place in a history of veterans in particular. Phil served in Iraq with the U.S. Marines and talks about his own place within the tradition of war writing and also thinks about himself and the way that his own particularly Catholic perspective informs the way he thinks about violence and embodiment and literary form more generally. Well, that's great. Why don't we take a listen right now? Thanks, Tony. Thanks, Dominic. So welcome to the Commonwealth Podcast, Phil Clack. Thank you so much. So, Phil, why don't you tell us a little bit about Missionaries? Sure. It's a novel told at first from four different perspectives of people who have participated in wars across the globe. So, you know, at some points the novel is in Iraq, there's in, it's in Yemen, it's in Afghanistan, and mostly it's in Colombia. So Missionaries is a big, sprawling novel that moves from the 1980s to the present, and it does so in a story that also considers the relationship between violence and grace, doubt and faith. And I thought we might start with you reading a passage from the novel. So the passage is just about midway through, and it offers a way or really two ways of understanding physical suffering. And I was Hoping, Phil, maybe you could set the stage for our listeners a little bit. Tell us who's speaking here and what the context is. Sure. So the first two sections of the book are in four different characters' voices. And this is one of them, Mason, who's a a medic in the Special Forces. And what happened to the Special Forces, which were supposed to be the kind of like warrior diplomat branch of the uh, armed services, that's, that's what they were created for is that during the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, they got increasingly used for just direct action missions. And so the sort of like institution building function of them sort of fell away for just kind of pure violence, right? And what the section I'm going to read is after a very large battle that actually took place in 2007 during an extremely violent deployment from the 7th Special Forces Group. And this narrator has been troubled by the direction of the culture of special forces and trying to figure out where he fits in. But also what has happened during this battle is one of the guys that he serves with has been severely injured. 
and he's had to treat him. There are two ways to think about severe wounds. One is the very smallness and weakness of the human body, pathetic even compared to other animals, and so easy to break beyond repair, so easy even with the most basic of tools, a rock is enough. And then to think of it in the midst of the sorts of things that happen in war, not just explosions sending earth and brick blossoming, but weapons that work by strange inversions of pressure, collapse buildings from the inside, or concentrate force in small spaces that liquefy metal and send it shooting out through the air. The penetration of the human body is so easy it almost seems beside the point. Such tools should be used for greater creatures than us. We are weak, we are fragile, and so perhaps we are nothing. There is wonder in the world, the unbearable blackness of the sky in Afghanistan, its piercing stars, the vibrations of the guns, soundless light on the horizon, flashes like echoes, a moon rising over sharp blades of mountain while tracers carve lines into the night. But man himself is nothing. The other way of thinking is the opposite. That the world itself is what is small. Mountains, stars, horizons, so much accumulation of rocks, dust, and an expanse of empty air, meaningless without someone there to see it. I was once shot in the shoulder. The world around me wobbled and vibrated and collapsed to nothing in the midst of the pain. I applied my mind to the pain, oriented myself, returned the world to its proper place around me. I thought of my brothers, who I was currently failing by no longer being in the fight, by being injured. Perhaps, badly enough, I would need their help leaving this place under fire when they had enough to carry without me. I thought of my wife and daughter. And then I looked at my arm, flopped to the side, immobile, mere matter, a thing, meaningless. And I applied my mind again to the pain, and a finger wiggled, dead flesh suddenly live. There was a miracle there, in the difference between the two. So the first way of understanding woundedness from that passage reminds me of the book of Job, right? Where were you when I founded the earth? And the second way of understanding meets this sense of human insignificance with the miracle of human consciousness. And both of those understandings of suffering reminded me of a passage later in the book where a, a very different character named Juan Pablo thinks of becoming a father. And he describes that moment as eternity wounding the material world, wounding the boundaries of my own brain and body and making me part of a larger story. And Juan Pablo is himself Catholic, if complicatedly so, uh, and you are too. And, and so I'm wondering how, either in this passage or more generally in the vision of missionaries, how you see the, the Catholic theological imagination or Catholic aesthetics informing your own way of thinking and writing about war and violence? Well, you know, I always think of the great World War I poet, David Jones, who was also Catholic, who wanted his poetry to be incarnational, right? And so that emphasis on, on the body, right? We don't just have bodies, we are bodies in some important sense. And that is also related to kind of what I what I try and think about when I'm when I'm writing about about what's at stake in war, right? And also the sort of, you know, the importance of our 
of ourselves as flesh, of the sacredness of the physical world around us, right? The sort of Hopkins, uh, the world is charged with the grandeur of God kind of sensibility. And, and then also, yeah, you're right, those, those passages from, from Job, which are, you know, very important to me. Yeah. Just the height. I mean, the, what was the, the reading from Isaiah? You know, your ways are not my ways. <laughs> my thoughts are not your thoughts. It's just the, the, the kind of intense mystery of existence, both in terms of spirit and matter, and then also this with just utter astonishing alienness of the world, right? You know, from Job, who split a channel for the torrent and a way for the thunderstorm to rain on a land without man, wilderness bare of humankind, to sate the desolate dunes and make the grass sprout there, right? Um, this sense of a of, of a world that is so much sort of beyond an anthropocentric view of reality. Yeah, and, and you mentioned Hopkins, and you know, oftentimes when I read a Hopkins poem, I'm attuned to the materiality, the beauty and the wonder and the awe of the materiality of the world. And I get that sense after reading missionaries as well. And, and I think one of the most interesting feats you pull off in this and that you pulled off in redeployment, your earlier collection as well, is how you show that moments of violence and suffering also attune us to our fleshliness and also to the materiality of the world around us. It's precisely our experience of violence that allows us, that forces us to see the world in all of its kind of sheer thisness, right? Right. Well, it's, there's a temptation, I think, especially, you know, if you're a writer, <laughs> to sort of think of yourself as like, your body is just kind of like a, a receptacle for your, you know, it's like the, the, the taxi for your brain, mm. right? Or for your mind, which is, I think, <laughs> the wrong way to go about things. And even, you know, one of the other things, in addition to that sort of materiality, is a sense that, you know, we're not just sort of disembodied minds, right? That that is ridiculous, but we're, we're not even really sort of isolated individuals, right? So, you know, the book opens with a passage asserting that that our kind of embeddedness within a social structure is essential to being a person. Yeah. So the, I think the passage you're referring to is, it's a quote from another character's perspective, Abelito, who we'll talk about in a little bit, but he says, a person is what happens when there is a family and a town, a place where you are known. And that idea that our cells are in part constituted through community, through social relations, is picked up not just in Abolito's story, but also in the story of an American journalist, one of the other four major characters, Lisette, who's thinking about Western Pennsylvania and, and says, being fixed in a community is one way of living, of knowing exactly who you are, why you are, what you were doing. And so all of your characters in all four of the stories are embodied in their bodies, but they're also embodied in communities that give them identity. And that part of the, the kind of tragedy of much of this story is the destruction of communities, right? The destruction of Western Pennsylvania through capitalist extraction, right? The destruction of the Colombian community from which Abolito comes. Yeah. There are these sort of broader structures, right? That are instrumental and 
inimical to to that kind of rooted existence. And I think that you know one of the concerns with for the book, you know, you, you, I mentioned David Jones, right? And one of the things that he did in his work was he would, you know, when you're reading, you're there, you're you're feeling things experiencing at the level of perception you know sometimes he's writing in a way where you sort of see a death and experience it as the reader at the level of you know what is occurring and what the person is experiencing before their mind has even gotten to the place of realizing that you know this guy has been shot right and so there's this really strangeness to the way that he writes but it's because he's so close to a physical immediacy right but one of the things that was a concern for me in the book is if that is important to you, and I think it is essential to get that sense of, you know, what war is what it does, what does it mean to have a sort of physically immediate description of war in a world where there's a globalization of violence, right? Where you can have a Colombian mercenary in an airbase in the Emirates watching a Yemeni tribesman all over a Chinese-made drone before killing him with an American-supplied missile, right? How do you write about that? in a physically immediate way. Yeah, and it seems that the movement between the very particular physical immediacy of what it's like to be in, involved in a firefight right, in Afghanistan, what it's like to see your family and community destroyed as it was for Abolito, the movement between that real incarnational physical immediacy and the larger ideas of abstraction and globalization and the relationship between capital and technology, it's difficult to contain those two things in, in one work, right? And I imagine that part of the reason you chose to write a novel is because it allows the kind of broader canvas for you to move between those poles. And I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about how you came to, to write missionaries. Um, you've talked before about the writing of redeployment. Your first collection was largely a process of moving away from ideological certainty, right? This is, I have a message that the American reading public needs to hear about war. I'm writing away from that and towards uncertainty, both kind of artistic and spiritual uncertainty. And I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit about how you first became interested in, in this particular story and why this particular story needed the novel form. Sure. Well, you're right. To, to get at something like this, which is not necessarily the experience of one war, but rather the way our wars are interconnected, right? Required It required a bigger canvas. It required being able to navigate through these different spaces. You know, one of the things that was just kind of fascinating to me as I was researching this, I was always interested in Latin American insurgency movements. We've had a long history with Colombia, and Colombia has been the largest recipient of American military aid in the Western Hemisphere since the end of the Clinton administration, right? But in addition to that, there's been a cross-pollination between things that happen in Colombia, things that happen in Iraq, things that happen in Afghanistan. And, you know, for example, Every ambassador that we've sent to Colombia post 9-11 has then gone on to be involved in, in the Afghan war in some capacity. Two of our ambassadors to Colombia, their next posting was to be the ambassador to Afghanistan. Also, there's you know one thing which the novel is concerned with is targeted assassination, right? So we developed a highly sophisticated system for gathering intelligence, and then killing or capturing people, right? 
So, you know, when you think of the Osama bin Laden raid or the Qasem Soleimani raid and or um, any number of other things, that is part of a system that has been built up to truly sort of industrial scale levels during the Iraq war. So, for example, in 2004 in Iraq, we were Joint Special Operations Command, which is like the, you know, high speed soldiers and Navy SEALs and such. They were doing about 12 raids a month. By 2006, they're doing about 250 right now the reason that that scaled up so much is not because you know the navy seals went to the gym and got that much more buff and 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 you know worthy of, of memoirs but because the system by which we sort of gather and exploit and then act on intelligence changed okay it became a lot tighter a lot more sophisticated so you're not talking about just one type of unit with a lot of training or a technology or a method of, of dealing with intelligence. You're talking about the way that you're sort of tying all those things together. Okay, so that's a sort of system. Most Americans, when they think of Navy SEALs doing a raid, they kind of think it's cool. When they think of a drone killing somebody from afar, right, they tend to think it's a little creepy. But from the perspective of the system, the targeting system, those are just the flathead and the Phillips head screwdriver at the end of that system, right? And it's the system that's extremely deadly and which we can help other countries, you know, with, which we can apply to other countries, which is what we did in Colombia. So you have a system of targeting. Now, in some ways, it's actually a child of a system of targeting that we developed on a much smaller scale when we were aiding the Colombians and going after Pablo Escobar. It reaches epic proportions in Iraq. And then we go back to the Colombians in the mid-2000s, and we supply them with smart bombs and aid them in killing leaders of these communist Gidija groups. And the Colombians were doing the actual killing, but it was, and we're also teaching them these sort of new methods of targeting, right? And they're reorganizing themselves around a more modern, sophisticated way of killing people. So if you look at sort of what, in theory, we've learned from Iraq and Afghanistan. In theory, we should have learned, I think, the limits of what you can do with violence, the limits of what you can do with pure military power disconnected from more substantial investment or relationships with a region. If you look at what we've built, though, we've built an incredibly sophisticated infrastructure for killing people, right? And so, you know, that you know, just looking at targeted assassination, which is one thing that the the novel tracks. And there's a sort of in the middle of the novel, there's a raid where this guy is killed. It's based on a real thing where they the Colombians put a tracker inside a giant teddy bear uh, because this drug lord had was throwing his girlfriend a birthday party and got her a six foot tall teddy bear. And the military got word of it and tracked the teddy bear to the party uh, to kill him. That raid happens in the middle of the novel, and it sort of reshapes the power structure in this one region. And that is what ends up kind of bringing the various different characters together. And so the way that the novel is structured is there are sort of different layers. So there's Avelito, who's from this rural region in Norte de Santander, and he is associated with this drug dealer, I guess, or not a drug dealer is not exactly the right word for him, but mm -hmm. former paramilitary gang leader. Terrifying um, character. Yeah. <laughs> Jefferson, yeah. yeah. And then sort of at the level above that, you have a Colombian officer in the special forces, right? And then 
Mason, who I read from at the beginning, he ends up as a special forces liaison to Colombia. And so he interacts with Juan Pablo. Juan Pablo has his own sort of set of incentives and kind of the, the institutional interests of the Colombian army as well as the, you know, their sense of what should be happening in the country. Mason has, you know, sort of picture from the U.S. side. And then above them, you have this journalist, Lisette, whose story begins in Afghanistan before she ultimately ends up in Colombia looking for a war that she can feel good about. And so she ends up in this region in Desantendeo. And so the, the way that the book was structured was to have different people sort of looking at the same thing from radically different levels whose plot lines would intersect because of this kind of new system of, of violence. Yeah. And one interesting kind of point of conversation within the novel at a, at a couple of different points, a couple of different characters refer to Michael Herr the great writer of the Vietnam War and talk about how her in her book dispatches, he had, he kind of went insane in exactly the way you had to be insane to cover the Vietnam War well. Yeah, this is something that um, another great Vietnam journalist had said about him, Sack. Uh, <laughs> there's an interview with John Sack, M Company, the wonderful journalist, but he thought like most people that Hare's dispatches was the greatest thing, right? And what Sack said, he, he realized when he's reading Hare, he's like, okay, so, you know, he would go out into the field, but at a certain point, he'd like feel himself getting exhausted. He'd start losing track of things. He'd feel like he was kind of losing the ability to understand the picture of what was going on, right? And so then he'd like have to go back, have some R&R, you know, kind of reacquaint himself with the broader picture. But what Hare did was Hare realized that actually like being out and going insane was a kind of critical aspect of the thing. And so he's like, like Hare donated his sanity to the cause of journalism, right? Like he allowed himself to go crazy. And it's funny because um, a journalist later asked Hare about what Sack had said about him. And he was like, yeah, I, I guess that's right. Like I did go crazy. But that's why Dispatches has that quality that feels like it's getting at a really critical kernel of that war. And so the at one point, you know, Lisette is talking about Michael Hare, but she's like, this, that doesn't feel like the right kind of crazy for this war, right? Yeah. Precisely because, right, for this kind of war, you need that, that more distanced, systemic, almost godlike omniscience, right, to see the connections between Colombia and Iraq and Afghanistan and back to Colombia. Right. And at one point, she sort of describes it as like, insanity overseeing a thousand tight logical circles right so like there are all these little missions that you kind of see individually they make sense right and she says like it's not the it's not like pot and heroin and lsd insanity but the insanity of a generation raised on iphones and adderall a glittering mechanical insanity that executes each task with machine-like precision eyes on the mission amid the accumulating human waste and you know if you look at this discrete mission set in in afghanistan or iraq there's a logic to it, right? And you can sort of see why this might seem to make sense. But then you sort of zoom out at the bigger picture and you have various different missions that seem to be like at odds with one another. And there's no kind of overall plan or real kind of leadership in terms of these wars. Yeah. And Lisette is an interesting character within missionaries because although she's a journalist, seems to me that she offers one way for you to think through the moral 
and political responsibilities of the writer in a time and in a place of war, right? So Lissette writes at one point, there is a naive belief among Americans swaddled from war as they are, that merely to tell the stories of the oppressed and victimized is a political act. Tell the stories and the appropriate political answer to the suffering will become apparent. Colombians who've lived with war for decades know better. So even though if Lissette is right, and my, my sense is that you'd agree with her, that merely telling the stories of the oppressed and victimized, that doesn't offer us the political answer to the suffering, to the violence, to war. Telling stories still seems an important part of at least asking the questions that are provoked by suffering and violence. And so I'm wondering, you know, what you've written op-eds for the New York Times, you've written essays for the American Scholar, and you're a novelist and and a short story writer. And so how do you conceptualize the political and moral role of the artist in relation to war and violence? Like what responsibility, uh, what role do you see the writer having in kind of shaping or reimagining the way, uh, say, an American readership thinks about war and violence and the culpability of America in those? I think the first obligation is just a sort of clear look <laughs> at, at the subject. I mean, I'm writing that about Lissette and, and, you know, this the time that she's in Columbia set in the run-up to this peace accord with the FARC, right? At a time when human rights as an issue is being leveraged to argue against the peace treaty, right? Because of the legitimately terrible things that the FARC had done, right? And problems in, in, in a war like that is that victims abound. Uh, and there are ways in which the, the stories of the victimized don't necessarily lead you with a clear political message or even a clear outcome, right? When I was in Iraq in last December, I met a man in a refugee camp in northern Iraq who had been injured by rockets fired by Turkish militias. And, you know, he's, he's living in a refugee camp in a tent with his two kids and his pregnant wife, and he's got a shattered leg with you know, pins sticking out of it, and winter's coming, and his perspective on things was the United States needs to be have a heavier military presence in Syria, right? For obvious reason, why he would want that, right? The question of what a victim of violence wants is important, right? And the story of somebody who's been victimized matters, but it doesn't simply telling the story of suffering can very easily turn into a kind of pity pornography, right? And the reason that you want to analyze violence is, in some part, you know, talk about what uh, what Baldwin mentioned when he was criticizing Uncle Tom's Cabin's catalog of violence that seemed senseless and unmotivated, right? The only important question is the reason why people do such things, right? If you don't want such things to continue, you need to understand them, right? And that means having, oh, something, a little bit of a colder view, or at least not being not being swept up in the idea that merely to tell the story is enough, right? I think you need to, to see if you can connect it more broadly to the to the society at large that 
creates systems that perpetuate that kind of violence. And so what is the job of the, of the writer, the fiction writer, is first to get at that more complex understanding of what exactly is happening, right? And there's a reason why the four narrators are all participants in some way in this, right? And they all feel responsibilities towards the wars that they travel through. And then the question is, what do they do? What is the right what is the right way in which you can leverage the the small amounts of power that you have as an individual embedded within institutional structures that are only so movable mm. in relation to these things? Phil, thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you. It's been great. The Commonweal Podcast is produced by Assistant Editor Griffin Olenek and the Commonweal staff in partnership with Sandberg Media. Wally Boudway composed the music, and David Dalt did the editing. For the Commonweal Podcast, this is Dominic Preziosi. <laughs>